My name is Clark Vanek, and I'm the director of the Alberta Centre for Sustainable Rural Communities at the Augustana campus of the University of Alberta. And I am one of the editors of Building Inclusive Communities in Rural Canada, the other being Dr. Dion Poehler from the University of Saskatchewan. This project grew out of an interdisciplinary workshop that I organized. And through the process, I learned so many great things, to be perfectly honest. I learned about so many initiatives and ideas related to this topic that are already generating results in different parts of, of rural Canada, or at least a lot of ideas that hold a good deal of potential to be doing so um, very soon. And, you know, there's so much value in each and every chapter in the book. Hi, Michelle. Jackie. <laughs> Today on the show, we are talking about a book that you actually have a chapter in. I do, I do. And um, we've had a conversation with several of the authors, and I think everyone will enjoy it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, some really interesting perspectives. And, you know, I grew up rural. Yep. Um, so many of the things made so much sense to me, uh, and interesting to see the breadth of things that people across Canada were studying about rural um, areas and inclusive practices and um, sort of the gaps in inclusion mm -hmm. in rural areas. Yeah. Yeah, the book came out of a conference and it had been a working conference, a really small one. There were only maybe, I'd have to look up the exact number, maybe 20 of us, maybe under that. Okay. And... So at the end of this small conference, we were like, what are we going to do next? And so this book came out of that conversation. But I really like that it's cross-disciplinary. And so you can see what other disciplines are grappling with or thinking about in relation to inclusivity in rural places. And I like that there's perspectives across Canada, like you said. Yes. And um, I like that it's a bit of a pushback against that idea that Canada is always welcoming and always inclusive and yet there's some strength in rural places for hospitality or neighborliness and so I think that comes out too. Right yeah. I liked there were a couple of things that were quite important to me. Neighborliness mm -hmm. was one of them because yeah. I think we pride ourselves in being neighborly. Mm -hmm. The other thing was just looking in the, the very first chapter about defining rural mm. and what makes it rural. <laughs> yes. And I will go back many times to that chapter and mm. um, make reference to it when I'm writing mm. because I often look for ways to define rurality. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, it's we've had those conversations lots because rural is in our name, right? And yeah. so, like at BU Cares. But... Um, a lot of people who are coming from places smaller than Brandon are like, oh, Brandon is not rural. Like you have McDonald's, you have Walmart, right? Yes. But then people coming from Winnipeg or other cities are like, what is this little town that's so rural? Um, so the other thing is that we have some video footage that we'll share with listeners from Clark Bannock, who mm -hmm. is one of the editors. Mm -hmm. And so 
it'll be good to hear his perspectives along with the authors as well. Yeah, I think that's great. He'll be able to kind of set up the book. I think there were lots of really rich moments in that conversation. Listeners will enjoy it. This afternoon, we're just going to get started. Um, we're looking at the book. I have it right here, Building Inclusive Communities in Rural Canada. And we have some of the authors with us today to discuss their chapters. I was very curious to know if there was anybody else doing any work or even just doing some meaningful thinking about what inclusion can and should look like in rural communities. There was little existing academic work that spoke to this idea, nor was there much on what meaningful anti-racism education or Indigenous reconciliation programming should really look like in rural communities if it was really going to garner attention and potentially change some minds in, in rural communities. What, what was it going to have to look like? So I sent out a bunch of in invitations and I got a really strong response back. I was so happy. 14 or 15 different scholars came and over two days, we just had a wonderful series of presentations and, and, and conversations. I'm an immigrant. I arrived to Canada 20 years ago, and I did my PhD here. And then I started working at the University of Quebec at Trois-Rivières on the subject of how to take into account ethnocultural and religious diversity. And I arrived to this question of uh, diversity. Uh, ethnocultural, religious, and linguistic diversity from that point of view. And I joined Corina. That was already a ticket here. Uh, I, I've grown up in an immigrant family uh, from South America in Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean. It's a, another region of Quebec. When I first began working at Trois-Rivières uh, after living in Montreal, I just experienced th this uh, alterization that I have experienced in Saguenay. So even more that I was working on equity and diversity in education. So equity and diversity is an object of my research, but it's also part of my experience. And so if I go back to, to our chapter, what we actually tried to do uh, at the beginning when we arrived, when we started working at Université de Québec at Trois-Rivières, and we went to schools because we work in education and we wanted to propose different activities with them, uh, they used to tell us all the time, we don't need that, we don't have that much diversity, eh, we're fine. And we kept seeing issues that they just didn't see. And we realized that one of the things they need is, is you know, is data. What, what kind of diversity you do have in your region? It doesn't mean, it's not because you don't have as much as diversity in Montreal that you don't have any diversity. And maybe it's also a different kind of diversity. The territory is a, a territory of a Tikamek people. Uh, and so we realized that they are not aware of all these uh, issues. And so we decided to present a, a tool to them. And the chapter that we present in this book is exactly to present actually the tool and also how you, we can work with this tool. How can we make uh, school staff realize the specificities of each region in Quebec and to also understand that the fact that we are in a far away region, for example, I'm in, I'm in Quebec City, uh, it can be an, some kind of an urban uh, context, but yet all around it's very rural. So we wanted to bring all these complexities in this analysis and not to stay in this idea of a lot of immigration in Montreal and all other uh, areas in Quebec. Okay, so we, we wanted to approach diversity uh, beyond the classic Montreal region divide. 
And so our chapter offer a different approach, acknowledging that all the complexity of the diversity that's in the the Quebec province, but also criticizing the categories that we use to talk about diversity. So the statistical data that we mobilize in the chapter, we also try to see what are the, the limits of that data that is available for the school staff. We try to make a typology to see similarities and difference between different regions of the Quebec provinces and offer a better understanding of diversity for the school staff personnel. And then we try to go beyond the adjustment of the practice for the minority student and to talk about this issue for all the students in the school. So that's not only an equity thing, huh? it's a thing for everybody. My chapter is focusing on the degree to which evangelicals, sometimes called conservative Protestants, and rural Canadians and Albertans might be a threat to inclusivity in Canada. So I took a bunch of uh, quantitative data, mostly Canadian, and tried to find out what kind of attitudes these people held in different areas, including attitudes toward women, attitudes toward immigrants, and a variety of other things. And what I found basically was that evangelicals and rural Canadians don't distinguish themselves much in attitudes toward immigrants and attitudes toward racial diversity and even religious diversity, which was a bit of a surprise for me when I think about evangelicals tending to be pretty exclusive with their beliefs. But where they did distinguish themselves more and showed less tolerance or inclusivity would be in areas for evangelicals, particularly in areas toward marriage, traditional understandings of marriage. So that would be attitudes toward women working outside the home. It'd be toward same-sex marriage and those sort of issues. So, of course, there's a lot of conservative Protestants in the rural prairie areas. And so their influence in those areas remains an issue. But in general, what I found was that the concerns related to evangelicalism, especially concerns related to evangelicals and the coming of American-style evangelicalism into Canada, um, were muted. They were less notable than you would expect to find, even in a place like Alberta, where there's been a lot of American evangelical influence. So I grew up on a strawberry Yupik farm in rural Manitoba, and also grew up in an evangelical church community. So a lot of what Sam's chapter talks about felt familiar. Uh, my chapter is an attempt to take a look at some of the ways that we maybe look south of the border or some of what's happening in Alberta even, and, and think about the kinds of policies that Canada has that it pats itself on the back for around multiculturalism or around tolerance, inclusivity, and yet to hold those ideals up against the realities that newcomers are telling us exists on the ground in Canadian communities and in rural communities. And um, looking at things like newcomers still experiencing significant social and economic pressure or significant benefits if they follow assimilationist tendencies. So changing their accent, changing their name, changing even their leadership styles to try to adhere to a more white Canadian norm. These are not in line with 
the way we like to think of ourselves as tolerant Canadians or inclusive Canadians. My chapter is a pretty critical look at those discrepancies. And then because I'm coming from the field of education, I'm arguing for education within rural communities as uh, not just education for newcomers, but as a more two-way street kind of education. So community-based education in rural places as a way of maybe closing some of those gaps or addressing some of those discrepancies. And so the way I did that was through a board game that I created, um, thinking that for people in rural places who may not attend an academic presentation or who may not even listen to a podcast like this, sitting down with a diverse group of people and playing a board game is not a threatening thing. My chapter comes out of my background, which is as somebody who grew up in a small farming community outside of Owen Sound, Ontario, which is on the territories of the Saugeen and Anishinaabe peoples. Uh, and a lot of my MA work, which I've actually come to see as the prelude to this chapter, or maybe the chapter as the capstone to the MA research, was trying to understand the rising politics of anger that I felt within the community that I grew up in. Uh, and then in this chapter, turning to the concept of neighborliness as an internal space of contestation of that politics of anger within the community of Owen Sound, that both sort of reactionary and progressive forces within the community claim an identity of neighborliness and mobilize it towards different political ends. And so in that sense, the chapter is really an effort to think with people in the Owen Sound area as political theorists in their own right, and to think of neighborliness as a political, like a concept of political theory that is distinct from the often imported languages of tolerance or multiculturalism or inclusivity, and that offers distinct avenues of political organizing and relationality within community. I'm someone who grew up in, in a small town in rural Saskatchewan. I was a townie, not a farm guy, so I knew that I knew the hierarchy as it used to be. But I have spent a lot of my career teaching in a small prairie city as well, teaching, writing, thinking. I have four generations of ancestors buried on Treaty 6 land, and that is an important basic identifier for me, and continue to work at what it means to, to live here with a sense of memory and care and respect and obligation, and my work proceeds from that. It really begins from, well, the revealing watershed on the prairies, which was the killing of, of a young Cree man, Colton Bushi, the response to that, the deeply polarized responses that were exposed, and the ways in which Saskatchewan municipalities could think of nothing else than stronger anti-trespass legislation, stronger stand-your-ground legislation. And I had my own long history of doing rural um, work in the rural West. And I thought, you can find a lot of that. You can find, if you're looking for it, you can find a lot of it. But it's too dangerous and it's not true to say that that's the only narrative that can play out on, on, on the rural West. That's a starting point. Another starting point is reconciliation or the determination of a whole way of living together, which is what the TRC also said is way too important to be left to national politicians or governments. It is intensely, urgently, meaningfully local. And I'm writing about and interested in places where there is no reconciliation from a safe distance, where 
It's it's how you respond to the person that you meet on the street. I live in a big city that is very spatially segregated, whatever it tells itself. But I could be in St. Paul, Alberta, which is not, which does not have the option of safe distances. So communities that sometimes feature in stories about rural redneck racism are actually, to me, more interesting places. And like Phil, I take up the language of the neighbor, looking for a different kind of language to reach in, even to some of Sam's people in rural Alberta, because the figure of the neighbor as an ethical figure has deep roots in a story in the Christian Gospels. But as I have been paying attention, it also is a language I've heard a lot from Indigenous community leaders, from Indigenous legal scholars. And I think there's really fruitful ground in the notion of the neighbor, the one who is near, the one, not the one who is the same, but the one who is near, the one with which there is history and entanglement and it can't avoid each other. Who is inside the circle of, of obligation? So I too think that the language of neighbor is rural language. And it has lots of creative and critical edge to it. Once we get past the, uh, the kind of feel-good stuff, to do some real work in the countryside. I also was interested that both you and Phil talked about the concept of neighbor. And just in the rural communities that I've worked in, one of the things that I think is part of the narrative there is that as our society has progressed and we are no longer challenged so much by the power of nature, there has been less need for being neighborly. And that has eroded some of the relationships between diverse people in communities. I always think that's an interesting concept because I, I think we often think that as we progress, we become more inclusive. And so um, I think sometimes we need to look back to know how it can be as well. One of the things that I've been thinking about in relation to the neighborliness conversation that we're having, and I grew up rural and I probably have rosy colored glasses when I look back on my early years, but that idea that in small communities, if someone's sick, they people will bring a casserole or someone broke their leg, you go and help them with their chores, you know, that kind of ethos I think still exists. Maybe it's not extended to everyone, but um. I, I sometimes think about, and particularly in relation to the climate crisis, is there a way that we can extend that sense of neighborliness to go beyond the physical boundaries around a small community? So could my rural community in Fox Warren, Manitoba still feel a sense of obligation and responsibility to people experiencing flooding halfway across the globe? And that is there a way that we can make that sense of neighborliness have a more global definition? It's something I think about often, and I like the idea that it's building from a strength, like the idea of viewing ourselves as neighbors feels good and feels like we could have a strong self-identity as I'm a neighborly person. I'm, I'm not sure how to do that. So maybe this isn't really a answer to the question, but maybe a question posed to the group. Um, for either Phil or Roger, if you have thoughts around that or anyone 
because I think we all have that uh, that background in rural and neighborliness might touch us all. Neighborliness is a kind of protective language. It is a drawing of the circle. So neighborliness has has these two dimensions to it. There's, if you are somehow inside the circle of obligation, it's very different than being on the outside. So how do we change the shape of the circle? Whether that language can extend itself halfway around the world is interesting because I think it is still very local language. And some of its power is about very personal practices of mutual aid. Before, but especially since writing the chapter, I've had a lot of time to think about this language of neighborliness as I've seen it used by Indigenous scholars, activists, and comrades who I've been in political community with as well. And I've seen it there a lot. And I think what I find unique about the way in which I think I'm hearing Indigenous peoples use this is it's not a bounded notion of neighborliness, as we often get probably derived through, to put my political science hat on, Westphalian notions of what it means to be in a place which is bounded and territorialized. And I think a lot about the language that people like Kanahus Manuel of the Tiny House Warriors uh, from Sequetmuk Territory in the interior of British Columbia, or that Frida Hewson of the Unistoten camp in uh, Wet'suwet'en Territory use, which is that they are in defense of their own territories, defending people who live downstream from them. And that quite literally means, in the case of the Tiny House Warriors, that their actions in the interior of British Columbia are a direct act of neighborliness towards the people of Vancouver and the entirety of the Lower Mainland. And that's not the type of like proximate relationship that I think we often associate with neighborliness. It's much more material, actually, and it follows the sort of material flows of how we are interconnected to each other. And I think that we could just appropriate that into how presently dominant social relationships under capitalism bring us into relationship in non-ideal forms with people all over the world. That the purchasing of commodities actually brings us into proximate relationship with people who we never meet, but we actually depend upon for our very livelihoods on a daily basis. And then the obligation becomes how do we politicize that relationship in a way that isn't based on exploitation and domination, but rather on reciprocity? I think we can also add something for this question of uh, neighbors on two different levels. And it's really interesting because we don't actually work on the question of uh, immediate contact with this diversity. And, and yet I think that through uh, this idea of who is my neighbor, my neighbor is supposed to resemble what I know, especially when I'm in a small area. And all of a sudden I realize that my neighbor is actually different from me, and but I don't really know him. I don't know anything about him. And I meet him in my school. And a lot of times for us, what we realize about schools is that it's where all, you know, we, we can't stay apart in school. Everyone goes to school, to the public school in the in the neighborhood, again, uh, of the neighborhood. So it's really a place of living together. I think that's uh, part of what is so confronting about the presence of um, of diversity in uh, rural areas is that we think we're going to meet someone that is like us. And we actually more and more meet people that are not that 
much like us. When we make diversity visible, we also make racism and discrimination visible and isolation visible. And in the tool that we developed, Sivan and I, we had this media section. And we see this tension in the media section because we analyze how the media discourse talk about diversity in the in the different regions. And we see this tension. Uh, on, on one hand, we need immigrants and we need them to the economic development, for example, of the region. But on the other end, uh, there seems like a, a threat for the neighborhood, and and we don't want them to be visible. Um, so I, I've done a fair bit of work on this whole notion of tolerance, and especially when it connects with religious communities. And what we find is that religious communities play with varying degrees of what now is called bonding capital, which means I have the ability to connect well with people like me. Versus bridging mm. capital, which is the ability to connect with people who are not like me. And uh, expanding the neighborly circle, if you like, uh, requires a certain amount of bridging capital, which might be less common in tighter communities, which tend to be more homogeneous. But the concern here, I think, in the tolerance literature is not necessarily religious ideology or even political ideology, which I found was a really strong factor in my chapter. Um, but uh, what Karina notes is this notion of threat. The notion of threat is that if these people are coming in and they might take my jobs or they might, you know, reclaim my land or whatever the view might be, uh, which is not specifically connected with any political, religious or other group, uh, but can be correlated with these groups because of exclusive beliefs or fear or whatever else. Then this notion of threat begins to play, which I think is actually a dominant factor in issues related to tolerance. Can I tolerate other people that I'm afraid of or I view as a threat? Dealing with those issues of threat and that these people are not a threat would be key to expanding the neighborliness narrative and expanding the circle into which people feel like they are neighbors. What, if anything, has surprised you about your work trying to build inclusive rural communities? I would actually go back to what I said at the beginning. When I arrived to the University of Quebec at Trois-Rivières, I arrived as an immigrant. It was such an obvious subject, the idea of how to take into account diversity in schools and in education. And this idea that we have to work into building uh, not only an inclusive community, but also an inclusive society. And you arrive to these rural communities and the, there is a different way of seeing the communities and also a different way of seeing what we want to have in these communities. For me, it was really surprising, uh, but perhaps because I came from the outside, I, so both as an immigrant and someone that never lived in a rural community. I did not understand at the beginning, why is it not obvious for them what is so obvious to me? And so it was really an interesting challenge of saying, Maybe we need to speak about the same issues differently. Uh, maybe part of the of this is that we speak of something that is not in the language of a big metropolitan area that uh, has a diversity presented in a certain way. We uh, did a lot of self-criticizing of saying what in the language we use, in the concept we use, in the way we present this concept and these numbers. How can we make it make sense to the people? that work in these areas and that it would stop being something that they are so detached from. 
So for me, it was at the same time surprising and, and a very nice challenge, actually. Thing about rurality brings the question of the scale. We had this question that start with Sivan thinking, well, we'll talk about the region of Quebec trying to, to make more visible the specificities of diversity in this region. But it's also another scale. And using this scale, we also contribute to making visible some things and not other things. So the rural scale has to be recognized as one of many other skills. I think I could maybe build off that. One thing that I have found really surprising in like the actual community-based work is a tendency amongst other people from the so-called in-group who grew up in, say, the Owen Sound community as well, to presume that because they're trying to build a more inclusive, tolerant, neighborly community, that they are somehow less a part of the community, if that makes sense. Or perhaps the way that this works is there's a presumption of a background intolerance and therefore they construct themselves as outside of it. And if my chapter is an attempt to do one thing, it's an invitation to say, it's important to stand in the ownership of the community, no matter what your feelings about its overall trajectory and to insist on the capacity to push it in different directions. I think I say in the chapter somewhere that there were a lot of people in response to the uh, racist stickerings that happened around Owen Sound in the summer of 2019, who had been doing anti-racist work in the community for decades and had this notion that, well, it's a community that's intransigently racist. And that probably comes from a real place of exhaustion, but it also does this weird obfuscation where it's like, well, you are as much a part of this community too. You, the person who I know has been doing anti-racist work for decades, which is to say that anti-racism is also a part of this community. And we need to insist on that as a principle that's at stake here, that we're not other from the people here, that we have just as much stake to it as they do. So I started with the Colton Bushi trial and the acquittal as watershed. One of the interesting things that's happened in parts of rural Saskatchewan has been in the emergence of people saying, that's not all rural Saskatchewan is, and how do we present something else? There has taken shape a really important commitment to land sharing, a land sharing network that is determined to deal very practically with treaty relationships at the level of particular land. Uh, even as government takes more of it away by selling off crown land, reduces access to land that even in a narrow version of treaty was available to indigenous peoples. The sense that that's not all rural Saskatchewan is. And here's, here's part of us that's not, I just love the way it plays with the sense of where the rural is and who belongs there. We wanted to show actually initiatives that are already on the field. And sometimes we weren't that comfortable with the initiatives that were there, but still it was really interesting and important for us to say, we're not arriving and discovering for the first time all these issues. Schools already have these questions and they already do things. And sometimes we can learn say, oh, wow, this is amazing. But sometimes we can also have a critical approach and say, okay, interesting, but maybe we can do it differently. And to better understand these dynamics of how you live in this in the region and all the small things that make uh, the region where you live. And I find it so interesting how much it's important in all our works to 
make place what's going on on the field and not just analyzing and presenting good ideas and how we think it can be better to build inclusive communities but also to listen you've been making me think about that throughout the conversation actually about um how much i know because i know it implicitly from growing up in rural saskatchewan like roger the importance of um, insider and outsider voices and the pieces that I miss because I'm an insider. The knowledge that we bring from different perspectives is really valuable. And you pointed out that voice of rural Saskatchewan saying, wait a minute, that, that case doesn't define all of us definitively. As Phil said, without denying the world we live in, that's the milieu that we are inserting ourselves into saying something else and we take the risks of doing that but it's not denying that none of it is exculpatory of the like facts of the case or its location i think what it is to say is a lot of the way in which the discourse is built around sticking it into a specifically rural box is a way of actually exculpating that type of racist violence in urban spaces as well you construct the rural as an oppositional space to the urban in order to exclude the fact that many of the worst instances of violence have not only built urban spaces in Canada, but continue to reproduce them as normatively non-Indigenous spaces. Um, so much so that we often think of Indigenous peoples as not existing within urban spaces, despite the fact that more than 50% of Indigenous peoples in Canada live in cities. I did some thinking about this and one of the things that really surprised me and maybe disappointed me was the openness with which groups of people playing the board game expressed racist views. And it bothered me so deeply and I couldn't figure out why for a while. And I think it was because they were my people, right? Like you said, my people earlier. And those spaces where mostly white people feel emboldened to share those views there wasn't even the kind of thing that we were just talking about where someone says, but I'm one of the good ones and, and points to their own good initiatives or whatever. There wasn't even that. It was a real personal challenge, I think, to, to do that research and to sit in front of those transcripts and read and think, like, do I still belong here? And if not, then what happens to me and where is where is my sense of belonging? There's a really great article called The White Space by Elijah Anderson that talks about white spaces becoming places where racism is shared and not challenged. And I think I would have given my eye teeth for even that sense of, but not me, I'm one of the good ones. That would have even helped, but that didn't exist in my case. Whether it is in Israel where I grew up or in France or in Quebec, and then in Trois-Rivières, it always happens. So maybe it is encouraging for you, Michelle, but it always happens. This is something we discuss a lot with our uh, research team, how to criticize the situation without making people feel that they don't want to listen to us, that they don't want to know what we're presenting to them, because we are confronting them with things. That it's not something that is discussed openly in a critical manner, I want to say. Uh, so it would be okay to speak like this and they speak between them and it's fine. And then when we bring these questions to uh, the discussion, that's the beginning of a change, or at least I hope it can be the beginning of a change. Yeah, I think about that too. I think it's easier to 
prompt people to change when you are calling them forward with hope and love and you know moving towards strength rather than uh crushing them with our criticality which some of us maybe have the tendency to do like if our self-identity is one of a neighbor then how can we improve our neighborliness or how can we do neighborliness in a better way might be more motivating for someone rather than coming to them and saying, you're not being a good neighbor. We need to be patient too. We were ready to collaborate with the schools and say, let's talk about diversity and uh, we will work together. People were saying, you are coming from Montreal, isn't it? And now the, the schools, they are saying the indigenous students in the classes and the refugees in their classes. And then they say, okay, we have some questions for you. And can you come and talk with us? I think we have to build this neighborliness together and be patient. We cannot come and say, uh, let's do our plan now. I especially appreciate sitting in the space of the contradiction of it, which is to say that we have to once recognize that the scale of morality means something, that we can identify real trends that are both uh, positive in some instances, as we've been discussing, but also deeply troubling in others. The issues are real, but I also don't want to turn them into this reified object in which the thing that we're doing in rural communities is so radically distinct and disconnected from the work that goes on to combat white supremacism and settler colonialism, along with a host of other power relations throughout the entirety of the country, but also on a global stage as well. I think that what I heard today is that we have to work more together because we are shared issues. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for a wonderful conversation. This book came out of a working conference in 2018. And so it's been quite a few years since I've seen your faces. And what a wonderful chance to get to see you again and catch up a little bit. Uh, arriving to this workshop, it was so interesting to actually see how all over Canada, we have very big differences in what is the diversity we have in these rural communities. And yet it was so interesting to see how the reflection of each one of us can contribute to our understanding. I came back from Alberta already very enthusiastic about this meeting, and I really enjoyed discovering all the chapters again in the book. I think uh, that it's a really nice opening of how to reflect differently on rural communities, not, not in a way of like apologizing that we work on rural communities, but to understand how important it is to reflect on these issues in this specific context and not always a side matter in compared to the big metropolitan areas. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Um, I really like the idea of neighborliness that uh, we've emphasized in this conversation, uh, particularly the notion of not allowing ourselves to do the othering of other people, but rather to own the issues that are part of our own milieu and to recognize that our voices are part of that larger voices and that there are diversities within every group, no matter how otherly we view them, and that uh, we can find common ground with them as well. There are two things I sometimes worry about. One is the very simple representation of the rural I also worry about rural in the way that it's become hardened as an identity marker for people living in rural places as a way of a kind of defensive shell that comes now with a whole set of baked in positions on everything.
it's not the whole of the rural, but it presents itself in ways that mirror the representation, the big city representation of rural. I wonder if very similarly to how Sam's research on conservative Protestant Christians has a stereotype around it, and yet some of his research was nuancing that a little bit, that some of the things that might be expected weren't true and others were. Maybe we need the same kind of thing looking at rural, where the baked-in stereotypes that you mentioned aren't always the case, and yet there, there are some places where it is. So maybe we need some nuancing around rurality as well. And, and also a recognition that there are many, many rurals. So I'd just like to thank everyone for the conversation this afternoon. Thanks for coming and sharing your perspectives. This has been really enjoyable. Mm-hmm.